Welcome to episode 52 of Frank Reactions, the show where we help you profit from the digital era through better customer experiences online and off. My name is Tema Frank. I have a confession to make. I've been busy working on my book. You've probably heard me talk about that if you're a regular listener to this podcast. The current working title for the book is People Shock, the 3P Profit Formula for the Digital Era. And because of all my effort on the book, I haven't been as diligent as I should be about making sure I have a couple of extra episodes of this podcast pre-recorded. On the positive side, I am now on to chapter nine of the book. So getting there, my goal is to fully finish writing it by the end of this year, and it's supposed to come out early next year. The result of all this, though, was that I don't actually have an interview ready for you today. So instead, I've decided that what I would like to do is share some of the book with you. I'd really love to get your feedback on it. But one of the things about being an author is it can be pretty isolating sitting in your office writing all the time and never really knowing whether people think what you write is good or not. So I'd really value your feedback. What I'm going to read you today is from chapter five, which is... The current title, anyway, is Behind the Brand, Vision, Mission, and Values. So just to give you a little recap of what will have happened in the book before that point, I will have introduced what I call the 3P profit formula, which is basically promise plus people plus process leads to profits. The first P, promise, is about your brand and how you live that brand. And in this chapter, I talk about developing and living a brand promise that motivates people both inside your organization and outside it. Every organization needs a rallying cry. One day back in 1998, the techie geek friend who had designed my first website for me in 1995 called me over to his computer. He was all excited. You've got to try this, he insisted. This was a mostly blank web page with a white box in the middle of it. Above it, in bold primary colors, was the word Google with a little exclamation mark at the end. And there was a thin gray word beta tucked in after the tail of the second G. Underneath that white box were two clickable buttons. One said Google search. The other said, I'm feeling lucky. Well, we tried several searches that day, and they all came back with better results than anything we'd tried before. I was an instant convert. We also spent way too many hours over the coming weeks feeling lucky and discovering a world we never would have thought to search for. Google's mission statement perfectly reflected the benefits that it was offering to us early web explorers. It was, quote, Google's mission is to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful, end quote. Whether you call it a mission or a vision statement, your organization will perform best if, like Google, it has a strong, clear, memorable expression of what you do and why you do it. Humans long for a sense of purpose. For the vast majority of people, just being isn't enough. We want to feel that our lives are accomplishing something, either for us or through us for others, usually both. Let's face it, we evolved as pack animals. Even in adulthood, it's almost impossible to survive without other people. Research shows that a lack of social interaction actually takes years off your lifespan. So if you want to get the best from your employees, inspire them with purpose. If you want to develop truly loyal customers, inspire them with purpose. 
Now, making money is part of purpose, but it's not enough. Once you've reached a minimum level of safety, security, and comfort, research shows that happiness doesn't actually increase with more money. Instead, happiness increases with greater human connection and with helping others. I'm not advocating that every business should turn into a social enterprise and give all its profits to charity, though I've got to say a growing number of companies are doing just that and are finding that being socially oriented actually brings greater profits. I'm thinking, for instance, of Tom's Shoes, which has become wildly successful, largely due to its promise, which right from the start was that for every pair of shoes bought on its website, it would donate a pair to people in need. Really, really helped that company take off. But if you want to develop loyalty among all the humans who interact with your business, having a strong, clearly communicated purpose will make your job much easier. Not only does it inspire your employees and customers, it gives you a filter to help you make difficult decisions on priorities. So let's talk about developing your vision or mission statement. And I'm using those two words interchangeably because I've seen different arguments about subtle differences between them, but there's no clear agreement. And essentially, they boil down to something pretty similar. If you're founding a new company, you get to determine what that mission is going to be, at least at the outset. Many startup entrepreneurs use a powerful vision that inspired them and then inspires others to come work with them, even when the company can't even afford to pay some of those people market rates. As the company grows, the customers may actually force a change in your vision or mission, what we call a pivot these days. Now, sometimes the pivot is just in tactics, but often as a result of learning what your prospect's actual pains and desires are, it can involve a fundamental change in what your company exists to do. For instance, in 1999, computer chip manufacturer Intel changed its mission statement from being, quote, the building block supplier to the new computer industry, end quote, to a more updated desire to be, quote, the building block supplier to the internet economy, end quote. In the case of Microsoft, its original mission statement was to, quote, put a computer on every desk and in every home, end quote. Done that. Check. So in 2013, they updated it. Sadly, the new one is no longer the aspirational statement of vision that the original was. Now it's a much more wordy, quote, to create a family of devices and services for individuals and businesses that empower people around the globe, at home, at work, and on the go for the activities they value most, end quote. Personally, I'm not so crazy about that. I think it's way too wordy and way too jargon-filled to be very effective. But that they needed to update their mission statement, no question. If you already have an established company and you realize that you need a more powerful vision or mission statement, something that will truly inspire people, you should involve your whole team in developing that new vision. If it's implemented from the top, it is not going to motivate change in behavior. Jerry Manis, in his book, The Resource Management and Capacity Planning Handbook, comments, the more mission statements are created in a vacuum and then, quote, announced, the more they'll be ignored by the general population. Instead, engage people in defining the desired culture and key success criteria, assess the current state, identify the gaps. You can actually hear my interview with Jerry if you haven't already at frankreactions.com forward slash 48. In developing your mission statement, you need to think about who you want to serve, how you can best be of service to them, why it is important that you do so, how you offer something different from everybody else, and what your values are. 
Now, of course, it's impossible to fit all that into a 10 to 15 word statement. And for it to be memorable, that really is about the maximum length that's going to work. To deal with that, many companies, including Google, elaborate on the mission statement with core values that need to be shared with all employees. Those values can be used as part of a screening device in making hiring decisions, and they must be explicitly stressed when training new recruits. They should appear in a whole bunch of different places where people will constantly be reminded of them. So for instance, at Oxford Properties, they give every new employee what they call the Oxford Commitment Cube, which is a little pop-up box that they can keep on their desks to remind them of the company's seven core principles. And if you want to hear more about that, you can check out my interview with Roger Pugsley at frankreactions.com forward slash 37. Your organization's core values should also be used as a filter when making tough corporate decisions. Google's values, for example, are a list of what they call 10 things we know to be true. And those are 1. Focus on the user and all else will follow. 2. It's best to do one thing really, really well. 3. Fast is better than slow. 4. Democracy on the web works. 5. You don't need to be at your desk to need an answer. 6. You can make money without doing evil. 7. There's always more information out there. 8. The need for information crosses all borders. 9. You can be serious without a suit. 10. Great just isn't good enough. Ideally, you'd have at most 10 items in your values because, again, the more there are, the harder it'll be to remember them. It can also be helpful if you use what's called an acrostic, where the first letter of each value spells out a word that'll be easier to remember. For example, the notion of SMART goals or doing a SWOT analysis were so easy to remember that they've become second nature terms in the business world. You don't even usually need to explain that, for instance, SWOT stands for strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. Next, let's think about what makes you special. You've got your vision or mission and values worked out, but you also need to know how you're different from everybody else. What makes your organization and its products and services unique? What's your unique selling proposition or USP? Sometimes that uniqueness is baked into the mission and values, like with Tom's. Tom's mission statement is, quote, improving lives with every product you purchase, Tom's will help a person in need, one for one. And that mission statement has been broad enough that they've been able to expand. They started with shoes, buy a pair, they give a pair. But their vision of improving lives one for one has given them a filter through which they've been able to make logical product extensions, for instance, to vision, buy glasses, and they provide the funds to pay for eye surgery glasses or related medical treatment for somebody, water, Uh, There, what they do is each bag of coffee that you buy will get a donation of a week's supply of clean water safe births, buy one of their uh, bags, and they'll give materials and training to allow for safer childbirth, and bullying prevention programs in exchange for backpack purchases. For many companies, though, that uniqueness is harder to find. If you're selling commodity products, that uniqueness will usually have to come back to your vision and values and how well you execute your customer service promises. But even commodity products can actually be differentiated this way. Simply saying you offer great service isn't going to be enough. Everybody claims that. How can you demonstrate that yours is actually different and better? When you figure out your uniqueness, whether it's customer service or focus on a different aspect of the product, 
It needs to feed back to your branding efforts. You want that to become a key part of your brand. So let's take a little case study here. A few summers ago, I spent a wonderful few days hiking in the Rocky Mountains and staying at the absolutely outstanding Mount Engadine Lodge. If you want to look that up, it's E-N-G-A-D-I-N-E Lodge. The human in me was inspired by the scenery. The marketer in me was inspired by how superbly the hotel managers at the time, Chris and Sherry Lynn Williams, had understood, learned from, and catered to their target market. Their customer-centric approach applies to every business. So here are a few key steps they took to turn this into one of the best inns in North America. And I'm happy to say, even though they are no longer the managers, the current managers and owners seem to carry on that same philosophy. So first, identify your competitive advantage. Now, it's true, they do benefit from a gorgeous location nestled in among glorious mountains that are home to some of the best hiking and cross-country ski trails in the world, overlooking a creek that's beloved by many local moose, with no neighbors because the provincial park laws no longer allow for construction of new homes or hotels. But what they had inherited when they took over the place was hostel-style accommodations and a sign at the entrance warning non-guests that they weren't welcome. Second, don't make changes until you understand the current situation. Chris and Sherry Lynn, who had managed several other inns and hotels over the years, took their normal approach of making no major changes for the first few months to see what was and wasn't working. When they saw the big group seating only tables in the dining room, their first thought was, oh boy, that's got to go. But Chris told me when he watched the guests those first few weeks, he realized that they actually enjoyed the interaction with other hotel guests. The family-style dining is now part of what makes that place special and distinctive. I mean, let's face it, unless you're newlyweds, and sometimes even then, it can get a bit, um, how shall I put this delicately, repetitive only talking to your spouse when you're on holiday. Sorry, darling. It's fun to be able to meet some new people who share your appreciation for the mountains and come from all over the world. The shared tables give even introverts a comfortable way to join in. Next, Who's your target market? Another early decision was to go after a higher-end clientele. If you were managing an inn, would you rather rent out 20 beds at $50 a night or nine rooms at $400 a night? This is where an understanding of your target market becomes crucial. What would make them willing to pay so much more? So some of the changes that the Williams made were these. First, moving to more luxurious accommodation. So they replaced small bedrooms and shared bathrooms with spacious rooms boasting comfortable beds, cozy duvets, and private bathrooms. They brought in an outstanding chef to prepare three hearty, delicious meals and an amazing afternoon treat buffet. The room price includes all meals, which actually makes kind of sense because, as I noted, they're in the middle of nowhere, so it's not like you're going to pop out to a restaurant. Supporting local producers. They complemented the food with locally roasted coffee beans, organic teas, and beer made by Alberta Craft Breweries. They also decorated the lodge with art by local artisans and artists. Adapting to customers' schedules. Recognizing that most of the guests would be on day-long treks, right after breakfast, they set out an assortment of delicious, packable foods, including home-baked breads and cookies. Everybody would assemble their own lunches to eat whenever they want, wherever they would happen to be. Remember I had talked about that sign telling locals they weren't welcome? Well, they changed that. They decided to encourage, instead of discouraging locals, from stopping in for afternoon coffee and treats. 
Not only was that an additional source of revenue, about one in ten of the drop-in visitors ended up booking a stay at the lodge within the next six months. Hosting special events that appeal to your target demographic. Increasingly, people are willing to pay for experiences rather than more things. That applied especially to the high-income customers that they were targeting, who were certainly not short on stuff. So they began a summer music series, Music in the Meadow, featuring intimate concerts by some of the country's best-known and rising star folk musicians. Even for people who couldn't make it to one of these concerts, just the association with this cultural event raised the tone of the place. And most importantly, they developed friendly, welcoming, consistent customer service. From the moment we walked in, we felt like we were being greeted by friends. While Chris took our bags to the room, Sherry Lynn gave us a tour, including the cozy living room that was stocked with board games and had a crackling fire in the fireplace, which was really nice because it was pouring rain when we arrived. They chatted with us about how they were going to deal with my food allergies, and the answer was amazingly well. They discussed the conditions on the trails. There had been some major flooding earlier in that month, so they wanted to make sure we were aware of what was and wasn't accessible and what the conditions were. They talked about the weather forecast for the coming days. And then we got into sidetrack conversations like Chris's championship-level Scrabble-playing expertise. Every day when we came home from our hiking, they welcomed us home and asked how the hike had been. And it wasn't just Chris and Sherry Lynn. All of their staff were every bit as friendly. I can't wait to go back. And the service was so exceptional, the atmosphere so unique, that I blogged about it, I tweeted about it, I shared it on Facebook, I wrote a great review on TripAdvisor, and now here I am sharing it on this podcast and in my book. That is the kind of customer loyalty you want to win by providing great customer experiences that support your vision, values, and unique capabilities. Live the values all the time. Once you've nailed down your mission, your values, your unique selling proposition, and your brand, you've got to be consistent in how you express them. They have to become truly embedded in everything your company does. Having this firm base of values and principles will help your organization deal with the inevitable challenges that result when things go wrong. And they will go wrong at times, no matter how hard you try. John Goodman, in his book, Customer Experience 3.0, breaks down the sources of customer dissatisfaction. He says that about 20 to 30% of the problems can be classed as customer-caused. These are things like customers failing to read the instructions and making assumptions about how a product is supposed to work. When the assumptions are wrong, the product may break or malfunction. Now, as a usability expert, I would argue that most of those really shouldn't count as customer-caused, because had things been designed in a more user-friendly way to begin with, the problem wouldn't have occurred. But certainly a fraction of the misuses will occur no matter how well a product is designed. The fact is, human brains interpret signals differently. So what may seem obvious to 90% of your customers may baffle the other 10%. Employee attitude error or failure to follow policy also accounts for 20 to 30% of the problems, he says. There are many reasons why this happens and things you can do to lower this frequency, and we'll discuss those more later in the book. Company-caused dissatisfaction, says Goodman, accounts for 40 to 60% of complaints. This includes product defects, bad design choices, overly complex designs, ineffective processes that lead to problems like shipping delays or billing errors, and misleading sales or marketing materials. He argues that misleading sales and marketing promises are the worst type of problem because customers will feel that the company was trying to pull a fast one on them. Quote, 
Customers are willing to forgive manufacturing or operational mistakes, but they will not forgive being intentionally misled. End quote. When I worked for a bank many years ago, we ran a marketing campaign called Zoo Crew to encourage deposits. People would get a high-quality stuffed animal if they deposited money and kept it in the account for at least 90 days. The animal they got varied depending on how much they deposited. So the top prize was a life-size gorilla, which they got for deposits of $15,000 or nearly $30,000 in today's money. It was so popular, we had trouble keeping up with the demand. I remember running all over Toronto trying to find more of these gorillas and buying them retail so that we could actually supply the demand from our customers. The second year, we actually doubled the amount they had to deposit, and it was still a wildly popular campaign. The first year we ran it, although it did bring in lots of deposits, we also had quite a few complaints from people who hadn't read the fine print and tried to withdraw their money before the 90 days were up. Determined not to repeat this problem, the next year I battled the lawyers and the ad agency and my boss until I finally got permission to use plain English rules, displayed in big, easy-to-read print right on the brochure. My superiors were terrified that we'd have a huge number of cash withdrawals at the 90-day mark. What happened? We had fewer withdrawals than the previous year, and this time we had zero complaints. People knew what to expect. To keep customers happy, you want to avoid nasty surprises. That's a big part of delivering on your brand's promise. The first P in the 3P profit formula. Hope you enjoyed that excerpt from my upcoming book. I would love to get your feedback on it. Just shoot me an email, Tema, T-E, Amazon Marketing, A at frankreactions.com. Leave me a voice message at 1-866-544-9262 comment on Twitter or on Facebook on the Frank Reactions page. Uh, On Twitter, you can find me simply at Tama Frank. I would really, really value your thoughts on this and your suggestions for how it can be made better. And also just your reactions to the whole idea of my reading some of the chapters from the book on the podcast. Hope to hear from you soon. And I will chat with you again next week. Bye. (music) 